Welcome, everybody, to episode 56 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Bill Rogio. Bill? Hello, everyone. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and have been running FTD's Long War Journal for a long time now. And uh, America's role in the war in Afghanistan has come to an end. And guess what? Uh, the jihad hasn't come to an end, and there's plenty to talk about. Um, this is an ongoing story, obviously. So even though we spend a lot of time on Afghanistan, this podcast, there's still quite a bit to discuss, right, Bill? Yeah, this, this war has not ended. This was a loss. Afghan, there's no better way to put it. There's no other way to put it. And, um, it needs to be digested and understood how this happened 20 years after 9-11, we lost to the group that sponsored Al Qaeda to conduct a terrorist attack on the United States. Yeah, let's start right there before we jump into it with other issues. Let's start right there with that issue, because, of course, one of the things that you and I have talked about a lot and written about a lot is Taliban apologia and how it infected Americans' understanding of all this. And I can, there's just so much nonsense out there, even in recent days, about the Taliban. All sorts of attempts to make exculpatory arguments on behalf of the Taliban and blame America and the Bush administration and this and that for the war in Afghanistan. Now, look, there's a lot to criticize. I can critique everything right from day one in, in the war in Afghanistan. So can you. And we have plenty of criticisms. If you can listen to episode 55, for example, there's plenty of criticisms to walk through of America's conduct of this war. But the apology on behalf of the Taliban is a bit much. It's a lot. It's actually way too much. And I just want to start off, Bill, by talking about one thing here. You know, it's telling that just days after the Taliban took over Afghanistan. Now, of course, when they take over Afghanistan, they what? They control the media. They control now the schools. They control the entire infrastructure. Well, let's start with the media. They control Afghan television now. And you've seen images of the Taliban's goons standing behind journalists on Tolo News and other programs in Afghanistan. But they also now control RTA Afghanistan or RTA, you know, Radio Television Afghanistan, I think it is. Um, and they used RTA to put out the latest edition of their Victorious Force series. This is a series you and I have written about. Um, this is the third installment in the Victorious Force theory series. And as everybody would expect, they gloat over their victory in Afghanistan. Um, they celebrate their suicide squads. And they do something else. They rub our noses in 9-11 because they have multiple images, both of the real footage from 9-11 and reenactments. And... As they play this on screen, they blame America for the 9-11 attacks. They blame American policy, which, by the way, was Mullah Omar's talking point 20 years ago and has been the Taliban's talking point every year since then. And so they go on television in Afghanistan, throughout Afghanistan. And I, know, I don't know how many homes this was broadcast into in Afghanistan these days. <clears throat> Excuse me. I do know that it received at minimum ten, tens of thousands of views online, probably maybe, maybe more than that. And they don't blame Al-Qaeda for 9-11. They don't say, hey, we're sorry about 9-11, it won't happen again. They don't accept responsibility for harboring bin Laden and refusing to turn him over more than 30 times, by the way. No, they don't even mention Al-Qaeda's culpability responsibility. Instead, they play this game where they pretend that it was just a result of America's errant policies or aggressive foreign policies in 9-11 happened. Now, there's a certain contingent for that market, even in the U.S. establishment. We know there are people who, who you know, trade in that sort of blame America thinking, blame America first thinking, for sure. But for anybody who's sane and rational, you know that that's garbage, right? And what I was struck by, Bill, watching this video was the disconnect between 
what the Taliban is saying on national television in Afghanistan and what our so-called elites are saying in Washington. You know, the so-called elites in Washington are talking about how they're going to hold the Taliban to its counterterrorism commitments. These are the flimsy commitments in the so-called, so-called flimsy commitments in, or I'm sorry, flimsy and so-called commitments in the Doha deal that was signed between the Trump administration and the Taliban in Doha in February 2020. At a time when Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is talking about their counterterrorism commitments and the Defense Department is talking about partnering with them against ISIS and you hear other people prattling along, prattling, prattling along, along the same lines. The Taliban is rubbing our noses in it on 9-11, about 9-11 on, on national TV. That's what they're doing. And they're saying that America and Americans deserve to get attacked. When we talk about the failures in Afghanistan, Bill, I think that this is one way to explore those failures. It's probably the most important way to explore those failures. Because how do you get to a point where America's so-called elite, their leaders, are making excuses for the Taliban and pretending that it's our counterterrorism partner while they're literally gloating about 9-11 on national television? Yeah, Tom, it, it's it's a process that began over a decade ago. Once we, <clears throat> once our so-called elites, as you, you said, and rightfully so, uh, have accepted the idea that the Taliban actually weren't our enemy and they were a group that could be negotiated with. I remember this even started with the back way back in the way with General Flynn and there was an English general. Um, I can't remember his name at the moment, uh, but they, they were saying things like, well, the Connies really are part of the Taliban and they're pragmatic. This was like 2009, Tom, if I recall. This is when you started seeing the floodgates open for this. <clears throat> it within, you know, not just the, the elites in Washington, but military leaders starting to state, state this. And once you went down that road, once the Taliban weren't our enemy, once you decided to disconnect the dots, as you love to say, and rightfully, again, rightfully so, Tom, I, I use so many of your, your phraseologies in this um, when talking to others. Um, once you start going down that road, you know, then this is how ideas like this become cemented. This is how you can have, as the Taliban's broadcasting their suicide bombers and rubbing, rubbing it in our noses that 9-11 was our fault and we deserved it. Remember, they issued a video a couple of years back saying it was a we deserved 9-11. We got what we deserve. This was that was that was in deal. that was in 2000. It was July 2019. You and I yeah. wrote it up. And that was in the middle of the talks of the Trump administration and, right. and Taliban. And it didn't, no, it just, those talks went on without a skip. Yeah. You know, without no, a, no, no one mentioned it. Didn't no miss one. a beat. Didn't skip a beat. Everybody just sort of kept going, oh, you know, Taliban is giving us counterterrorism insurances. You know, okay, great yeah. job. Great While job, they're, guys. you know, so the, once, once that began, once that process began, it was over. We, that's how we knew the war in Afghanistan was lost. Certainly by what, Tom, we probably knew this by, what, 2013, 14. We knew the surge would fail. You know, that, those are tactical and, and reasons. But we knew that once the once the, our policymakers, our so-called betters, viewed the Taliban as, and even what General McKenzie said recently, he called them our Afghan partners. Once you go down that road, it was lost. And, and this this outcome was bound to happen to have a Taliban controlled Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, I think, as you said, Bill, you know, when you, when you get into this, the details of this, the truth of the matter is that this was a foundational reason this war was lost. There are many reasons why the war was lost, many reasons why this uh, debacle unfolded the way it did. And I think some of those reasons are well understood. Others are not. This is one of those foundational reasons that's not understood. 
is that the truth of the matter is that for much of the 20 years, America pretended like the Taliban wasn't really its enemy. How do you fight in a war against the other side when you have many people saying, well, they're not really our enemy. We don't really want to fight them. I mean, in the history of warfare, have many wars been won that way? I don't think so. And yet, for certainly the last decade of this war, that was the dominant thinking uh, in policymaking circles. And it was it, this disconnect the dots mentality really had permeated. But, you know, again, I think that, you know, look, you and I can muster an encyclopedia worth of facts to show how this thinking was erroneous um, and really flawed and in some ways even sick, I would say. Um, because I think when I, when, I, when I go through this, I see all this revisionism and apology online. I have people tweeting stuff at me. I see it in articles. And it's, it's clear that, that people want to believe that the Taliban was going to settle for something other than the restoration of its Islamic Emirate. They want to believe that. They want to believe that America was at fault for this war in the first place. Meanwhile, the Taliban is rubbing our noses in 9-11. So you know, there's a lot of ways we can rebut that Taliban revisionism and apologia. But I think that video is a great starting point. But here, let's let's talk about this a little bit further, too. One other quick thing on that. The degree to which this, this revisionism sunk in, it absolutely shaped, I would say, even warped policy. Bill, you and I have been looking at the comments for, let's look at the comments just even done, again, I mentioned Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's comments. You know, he's got a whole graveyard of uh, wrongheaded assertions this year. You can go through them, one tombstone after another, of things he said that just didn't pan out and don't make any sense. But he's not the only one. There's, there turns out there's a whole uh, graveyard of nonsense comments that have been made by America's leaders, so-called leaders. You take the last two, the last two def- defense secretaries for President Trump. I was just looking at this recently. So you remember he had um, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. He gets fired in November of last year. I think it was after the election, um, in part because he disagreed with the way that, that Trump was pushing to withdraw completely by Christmas, I think it was. You know, this is part of the, the Trumpkins now. They'll say, well, you know, it was, a, it was a conditions-based withdrawal. They didn't really want to get fully out. Oh, no, he wasn't. President Trump was pushing for a complete withdrawal. And, and you know, it, which is, that's his prerogative. You know, he should have completed it earlier, I would say, you know, and own it, you know. Um, but don't tell me now that it was, it was conditions-based withdrawal because it wasn't. But anyway, Esper disagrees with that. But in his, and there's a lot of what Esper has been saying that it's true. He's right that the Taliban didn't live up to any of its counterterrorism commitments, didn't live up to its end of the deal when it came to talks with the Afghan government, which was looking to depose. But part of what Esper says is wrong. Like in, in terms, it shows you how this, this revisionism had sunk in. He wanted to keep an ongoing presence in Afghanistan because he and others imagined that it was going to affect some sort of political solution, political settlement between the Taliban and the Afghan government. No. No, folks, no. There's no evidence for that, right? They were fighting to win all along. This is how delusional American policy became. But you only get to that point if you have a warped view of the Taliban in mind, right, Bill? Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, we could talk about a lot of problems that, you know, of why this war was lost, why, you know, how we built the Afghan government, how we built the Afghan military, strategy, counter, you know, rural versus uh, population center. Those were fixable problems. Those were problems that could have been corrected over time. There were tactical problems in how we were um, operationalizing strategy. But the strategy itself was wrong. Think And for what you had just said, we can negotiate with the Taliban. Just flat out wrong. If you operate on that principle, you're, you're destined to lose. The Taliban will negotiate, will, will negotiate in good faith and will share power. Absolutely. When you have those beliefs, when you, that is factored into your decision making and into your strategy, you're, you're destined to lose. You know, 
this is where, you know, look, I have a lot of criticism of the, the Bush administration handling of Afghanistan. But those were problems. It wasn't it never came from the, the point of or from the place of let's negotiate with the Taliban, let's surrender to the Taliban, the Taliban are our friends. It didn't come from that. Those problems we could have, you know, in 2010, in 2015, you could have reorganized the Afghan military. If someone would have recognized it, no one wanted to recognize it. And the reason they didn't want to deal with these issues like that is because they believed that there was a political solution at the end of the, at the tunnel. So why bother reorganizing the Afghan military if at the end of the day, um, it, it, that's assuming they even recognized that there was a problem, which I don't think they really did. Um, but why bother, why bothering fixing those problems if you think at the end of the day, you're just going to get a solution with the Taliban? Yeah, I would say that that this is why the counterfactuals and all this are so difficult because the problem is that I can't fix these foundational problems. Certainly, we couldn't fix them at the time, even though we were arguing against it, right? I mean, we were arguing against this is not a, this is not hindsight is twenty twenty. We were saying this at the time. We've been saying this for the last twelve years. You know, just nobody wanted to base their policy in reality. So if, if you know if you're saying it at the time and there's plenty of evidence at the time and people are leader our leaders are unwilling to fix it, well, there's nothing we can do. And so that's why these counterfactuals are, are almost impossible, I would say. In fact, my joke about counterfactuals on Afghanistan now and how the war could have gone different is and I probably used this before on the podcast, but I'll use it again, you know, uh, you know, these types of counterfactuals are the equivalent of saying, if I was a horse with a horn and wings, I'd be a unicorn. Right. I mean, well, look, folks, I'm not a unicorn, you know, so but that's basically what the, the level of the counterfactual. That's how screwed up the war in Afghanistan is. You have to entertain this massive leap to try and try and figure out how to make it go better than it did. Let's say you know, I don't even think win. Just just make it something that's salvageable. Um, yeah, Tom, but, real, and real quick, you know, the argument to stay in Afghanistan, just to stay in Afghanistan, if we had just kept those troops in Afghanistan, this wouldn't have happened. Well, maybe it wouldn't happen like this, but as long as our strategy was wrong, as long as we were waiting for that settlement, we were destined to fail. The Taliban was taking over territory. And so <clears throat> it's just very frustrating to hear it. Every, and then all of the arguments are political. It's Trump. It's Biden. It was this. It was that. You know, they could all be this this ridiculous binary thinking. It's all of them, particularly the last three administrations that whose primary goal for Afghanistan was to leave Afghanistan. Once that's your goal, everybody has their has their is looking at the exit, and no one's really cares about success it, because the success wasn't the goal in Afghanistan. Leaving was the goal, and that's a huge part of the failure as well. That's why the military did things half-assed. That's why State Department looked for diplomatic solutions. That's why military leaders like Nicholson and, and General Miller were were leaning on negotiated solutions because they realized that we were leaving and they said stupid things like there's no military solution for Afghanistan. Tell that to the Taliban. Their military solution looked pretty final, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, look, we got a lot to criticize within the U.S. military leadership. Part of it is that nobody stood up to say this is insane, right? That, you know, I mean, if they maybe they didn't understand it was insane. Maybe they were lying themselves. Maybe they were lying to us. Maybe a combination of all those things. But yeah, if you're operating within erratic political leadership that just wants out of a war, if I were a general, I'd say, hey, listen to the commander in chief. You want out? Well, then let's get out. Don't tell me that I have to, st I'm not going to stay in some sort of compromised, ambivalent state here. If the decision is that we're out, then we're out, right? Then don't don't make me try and compromise here because either either we fight to win or we leave, right? And the point is, is that we spent more, the U.S. spent definitely most of the war, most of the 20 years not fighting to win. That's for sure. Um and so there are a lot of people who say, well, you couldn't win anyway. Well, again, counterfactuals are difficult, especially in something as messy as this. 
But all I know is that the, for all those people that, that advocated a negotiated settlement with the Taliban, where's your comeuppance, right? The, the, the truth of the matter is that the American government pursued your policy line for much of the war. The U.S. went negotiated with the Taliban at length two different times over the pe- period of 10 years. You know, the, the first time ended with a debacle in Doha where they, they rubbed our noses in it and flew the flag of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And even the Obama administration walked away from those talks because it was clear they were not serious about peace. The second time ended with the Taliban taking over the country. So don't tell me that your diplomatic path was better than the military path because your diplomatic path actually compromised the military path. And the two of them were ad, acted in a symbiotic sort of way to lead to a total victory for the jihadists. Because guess what? They had better military strategists than our side, and they had better diplomats than our side. And isn't that pathetic? Um, so before we move on to the, what's going on in Afghanistan now, I just want to give one other comment here. So I mentioned the last two defense uh, secretaries for Trump. I mentioned Esper's comments. Chris Miller, who was the acting defense secretary, who doesn't really know anything about al-Qaeda. And he's got a, he, even over a period of several months, he has a graveyard of inaccurate statements about al-Qaeda, which is quite impressive, really, for a guy who was the head of the National Counterterrorism Center. Miller, um, you know, he, he had a whole idea. He was talking to Defense One, I think it was. He did an interview where he was talking about his whole plan or his whole understanding with the Taliban was going to allow America to keep um, counterterrorism forces in in country to, to do counterterrorism missions, right? I mean, boy, oh boy, how clueless is that? What, first of all, it's it's operating on the assumption the Taliban isn't in bed with al-Qaeda, which it is, right? So you're wrong about that. And then it's operating on the assumption that the Taliban is willing to allow America to maintain some sort of presence in Afghanistan, which it never was, right? And then it's, it shows you this sort of myopia where it comes to ISIS, where it all became ISIS for these guys. That's all they could see. Now, ISIS is a threat. It's a problem. But, you know, this idea that you were going to work again with the Taliban against ISIS while ignoring the elephant in the room, meaning al-Qaeda, really tells you a lot about how feckless America's leadership is. But that was his. So these last two defense secretaries for this war uh, under the Trump administration before Lloyd Austin comes in for the Biden administration really had no understanding of even what they were looking at. And they had bought into this idea of a negotiated settlement with the Taliban and even thought the Taliban was going to be our counterterrorism partner, which of course is insane. Yeah, Tom, I, you know, I summed that up with the Taliban will fight ISIS, or even as Secretary Pompeo said, the Taliban will work with us to destroy Al-Qaeda, right? Let's partner with terrorists who use suicide bombers, that's the Taliban, to protect the United States and its citizens from other terrorists who use suicide bombers, Islamic State or Al-Qaeda. I mean, it's absolutely insane um, why we would think that this would work, that this is a good idea is beyond me. But it just just goes to show how desperate these people were and how little they understood the nature of the enemy. Um, it, it, we saw this one coming from miles and miles away, from light years away, we saw this coming. And everyone pursued this path of insanity. And this is how you get a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan with its ally, Al-Qaeda, showing its hand once again. It's always been there. Now we're starting to, they're coming out in the open. Dr. Amin al-Haq, who was Al-Qaeda's security chief on in Tora Bora and prior, he's escorted by the Taliban in a military convoy in a celebratory return to his home in Nangar province. What does that mean? I don't think you need to be a rocket science, but something tells me that the Taliban wasn't working with the U.S. to destroy al-Qaeda in that particular instance, and in fact, just the opposite. 
Yeah, it was all nonsense. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is the Taliban suicide bombers are often are Al-Qaeda suicide yes. bombers, you know, yes. because Al-Qaeda's trainers and mentors are all embedded. You can see this in a variety of places, all embedded to train them. And there's there's all sorts of, of evidence that the special forces for the Taliban, which utilizes suicide bombers, has quite a heavy Al-Qaeda hand within it. Um, but um, before moving on to the aftermath here, which I want, really want to get to in one second, um, you know, look, all the apologists for the Taliban, all the revisionism for the Taliban, the thing that's really perverse about this is they've gotten their wish, really. They've gotten the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan has come back into power. And these people are going to continue uninterrupted. You know, they can go from advocates for the Taliban or de facto advocates for the Taliban to basically lobbyists for the new Islamic Emirate. And this is how sick all this is. You know, I, I would rather just have the U.S. disengage than continue to engage on a pro-Taliban policy, which has really aff- affected things throughout much of the affected things throughout much of the war and is now going to be is now going to dominate, I would say, the aftermath, which is really, I think, perverse. Um, but let's move on to the aftermath here. So you mentioned the Akhani's earlier, Bill. One of the things that is striking to you and me, we've, we've watched this online, is the, how much the Taliban is advertising not just Mullah Omar, its founder, as the ultimate victor in the war in Afghanistan, but also Jalaluddin Akhani. And you can see, you and I noticed this, that they Taliban very quickly had billboards to put up all throughout Afghanistan, didn't they? You know, they're professional quality, um, you know, with with high, you know, high resolution images and they're in Kabul and they're elsewhere. And some of these billboards, of course, um, advertised Jalaluddin Akhani, who um, was one of Bin Laden's, really Bin Laden's first benefactor, certainly his first benefactor in the region. Um, you know, as I'm, We've written up some Haqqani-related stories. Recently, we've written up the Haqqanis many times over the last 12-plus years, and I have two Haqqani-related stories coming um, in, in coming days on Long War Journal. But to me, this strikes You were talking about how you know there was this idea in the U.S. military and the U.S. government about a decade ago, a little more than a decade ago, that the Haqqanis were reconcilable, that they um, were something other than an integral part of the Taliban and something other than al-Qaeda's closest ally. This, again, speaks to the pro- the fundamental problems here, right? This is ignorance, just sheer ignorance. You know, the U.S. didn't understand who the Akhani's really are or how they fit into all this. And it took years for the U.S. I think it was sometime, you know, there was a debate even in 2011, 2012, sometime around that time frame, about 10 years ago, about even designating them as a foreign terrorist organization. Remember, that was all, there was actually an elaborate, elaborate there was an elaborate uh, sort of debate in Washington over whether or not they should do that, Right. And it's like, holy cow, you're 10 years into the war and you still don't know who the Connies are or whether or not they're a terrorist organization or whether or not they're either basically a core part of what Al-Qaeda is doing in the region. I mean, wow. You know, it just speaks to the fundamental ignorance here. But the fact that the Taliban is now celebrating openly Jalaluddin Akhani on these billboards and elsewhere and all throughout social media speaks to the magnitude of this ignorance on the American side, right? Because it shows you that they consider him to be this ultimate victor in this war. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've had Ned, State Department spokesman Ned Price comes out the other week and says, the Haqqanis and the Taliban are separate. They're not the same. And then yesterday, the Taliban, look, we've documented this for years. The Taliban themselves, the Haqqanis, the Taliban, they all say this is nonsense. And then you have the Taliban spokesman come out and say this again. Ned Price is either ignorant, and I, when I say ignorant, I'm, I'm saying it in the sense of he doesn't know, or he's actively lying. Neither are good, folks. I don't know what to tell you. Like, if if he doesn't understand the Taliban-Hakani relationship and that the part they are one in the same, 
then he shouldn't talk about it. And if, But if he knows it, he's lying to the American public. I suspect he's ignorant, and this is just what the Taliban apologists and the people that need to, you know, push these types of ideas to, to in order to separate the, the Taliban-Hakani relationship, because these are people that want to work with the Taliban. But let's face it, folks, the Taliban, the Hakanis aren't the only part of the Taliban that are closely allied with Al-Qaeda. It's just the easiest one to identify. It's it's just the simplest one because just about every Haqqani leader who's been designated has been directly pointed to to ties to Al-Qaeda. But Tom and I could name several others who have been designated within the Taliban um, who are senior leaders and who are not Haqqanis and who have close ties to, to Al-Qaeda. So it's this kind of nonsense that persists that just it's completely maddening and we know why it's being done. It's being done. This type of apology is put out there to justify negotiating with the Taliban, working with them, calling them our Afghan partners because American officials know that they abandoned Americans in Afghanistan. Hundreds of Americans who want at least who want to leave Afghanistan and who are essentially hostage um, to the Taliban right now. And so this is why these types of things are said. Um, and it's also the decade plus of apologia for the Taliban. It's it's absolutely maddening. Um, it, it, you know, I would hope that one day someone would investigate the, the Congress, some would investigate this. But everyone's just too busy with finger pointing and saying, making political issues out of this. So the reality is, is all of this will just be mired in ignorance for for the next several decades. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I always say I hope none of this matters to Americans ever again because watching the first run of this story was painful and documenting it, you know, was just uh, just absurd. But um, yeah, the, the Connies are the easiest part to point to, both being an integral part of the Taliban and being Al-Qaeda's closest ally in the region. Um, and yet they're still mangling it in 2021. They're still either, as you said, lying or don't know it. And, you know, Pentagon spokesman uh, Kirby you know, just recently said too as well. And John Kirby came out and said, well, there's a certain amount of commingling there. I think it's the phrase he used. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a certain amount of commingling, Kirby. Got it. You know, commingling, you know, I mean, Sergio Nakani has literally been the deputy emir of the Taliban's Islamic Emirate since 2015. He's now the interior minister in the new regime, which gives him vast power across the governance structure of the Taliban's new authoritarian regime. Yeah, I could call that some commingling, but you can go through all sorts of other other points here where commingling, of course, absolutely downplays the extent of what happened here. And the the truth of the matter is, um, the truth of the matter is that um, this all speaks to the fundamental ignorance in all this, and it's just ridiculous, you know, just totally ridiculous. Um, so let's talk about a little bit more about the Akhani's, however. Um, so I just mentioned Siraj Akhani, Sarajud Akhani. Um, the Taliban put out a statement. I'm writing this up from a long more journal. Um, I think it was Secretary of Defense Austin or somebody else recently commented from in Washington that, you know, Sergio Nakani, who's the interior minister, deputy emir for the Taliban's Islamic Emirates since 2015, was basically, you know, a counterterrorism concern or a counterterrorism target. And the Taliban did something very interesting. They used the Doha agreement <laughs> against America. The the servile the servile agreement that the Trump administration entered into with the Taliban. The Taliban comes out and cites the agreement and says, no, no, no. Uh you can't attack Siraj Akhani and you can't do anything to counter his threat or the fact that he's, you know, here and doing his terrorist thing because you signed this agreement saying you wouldn't do that. And this is part of what you and I were warning about. I pointed to the fact that Section 1F of that agreement said the U.S. is never going to attack Afghanistan again or use military force in Afghanistan ever again. 
And then you have the Washington in its complete idiocy citing this agreement as if it's still in effect and if the Taliban is our counterterrorism partner. Well, meanwhile, they're using it to defend one of the most wanted terrorists on the planet, right? Washington simultaneously has a $10 million reward, up to $10 million reward for Sergio Nukani, whose dossier of Al-Qaeda ties and connections, I mean, that's even just a vast understatement, but be that as it may, his Al-Qaeda role is well-documented, okay? From Bin Laden's files, his own public statements, media, I mean, just, it goes on and on and on. But the bottom line is that contrary to being our counterterrorism partner, or living up to their so-called counterterrorism assurances, the Taliban under the Doha deal, the Taliban is using the Doha deal to protect the terrorists, you know? I mean, holy cow. I mean, how incompetent is this, right? And Washington just doesn't even, you know, it doesn't even register with them because they're out to lunch, right, Bill? Yeah, Tom, you know, I, I laugh because as soon as this thing was signed, I remember a phone call with you. Um, and I remember you saying to me, man, they're going to use this as a cudgel against us time and i just remember shaking my head going yeah exactly and it didn't take them long um but they've been using it for since it's been signed and uh, it's completely unshocking to, to you and i uh it's this was this document you know a lot of people are trying to absolve the trump administration and president trump for his role in this he he look he didn't he wasn't president when this withdrawal was announced and executed but he set the conditions for this debacle and he shares blame in this problem, as do uh, many others. You know, just as we could point to numerous problems uh, of the, how we lost Afghanistan, we could point to numerous actors who were involved. President Trump shares a point of that, a, a, a part of that blame. Obviously, President Biden's or President Biden's execution of the of the withdrawal was horrific. I don't think it could be described as anything us. It, I mean, unless you think it was an extraordinary success, as he said, um, I think a lot of people would beg to differ on that. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it, it, this deal was a horrible idea. We said it from for years. If you want to leave, leave. Do it in a manner that gives the Afghans the best chance to fight for their country. Help them on the way out the door. Pulling the rug, signing a bad deal and pulling the rug out was the worst thing, worst possible way to, to leave Afghanistan. Um, it's textbook like it, it couldn't have gone any better for the Taliban. Everything went into their went in their favor. Every single at every point they got prisoners released. They got international recognition. They delegitimized the Afghan government and the U.S. left in a manner that allowed them to conquer the country in three and a half months. Yeah, I mean. Look, I'm, we don't need to go into all the deal problems again. You can go to p previous podcasts of, and we talked about all this at the time, beforehand, during, and afterwards. We've talked about how this deal is ridiculous. But I just want to just point out, and I'm going to write this up in Long Word Journal. Instead of living up to their counterterrorism commitments under the deal, which is the talking point from the State Department and others in Washington, the Taliban is using the deal to protect the terrorists, you know? And I, I kind of want to add at the end at the end of that comma, you idiots, right? Because you know it just shows how just how how dumb this whole thing has been, right? I mean, Tom, just really, I, I gotta really... stop. Like, look, I think that's insulting to idiots and to all yeah. idiots out there. We yeah. we a generation jihad apologize for equating you to people that um, yeah. agreed to this deal and and executed. Unbelievable, yeah, unbelievable. Anyway, oh, anyway, so um, let's talk about some of the other Hakani related stories here. Um, one, obviously, Khalil Khani, who's Sir Juden's uncle, brother of Jalaluddin. 
he's been enjoying, he's been really feeling his oats here uh, in the Taliban aftermath. He's been, you know, having a victory tour across Afghanistan. He's been playing a big role diplomatically. He's the new minister of refugees in the Taliban regime. Um, I think the Taliban is going to say he's protected as well by uh, the Doha deal, even though he's a U.S. Uh, designated terrorist who was, and part of the designation was that he was working with Al-Qaeda very closely in their military operations. And otherwise, um, and as Minister of Refugees, by the way, you know, one of the things you and I heard, Bill, was that the some of the Al-Qaeda guys in Afghanistan are considered refugees by the Taliban, right? Because they're refugees from, and so, so wait a minute now. So the guy, Khalil Al-Qaeda, who's been working with Al-Qaeda for God knows how long, for decades, um, you know, he's now the head of, the, he's now the Minister of Refugees. I, I'm guessing part of that is that he's there to protect Al-Qaeda's refugees in Afghanistan, and the Taliban is going to say that he's not a legitimate counterterrorism target because of the Doha deal. Now, do you see how completely ridiculous this all is, right? So literally, literally, the guy who would be in charge of protecting the Al Qaeda refugees in Afghanistan is going to be defended by the Doha deal because they say you can't attack us in Afghanistan, including the guys that are protecting Al Qaeda. Okay, this is you know I don't even know. Um, so let's go on another one. I, I've got another write up coming on Ibrahim Hakani as well. Um, this is an interesting character, too. He is Khalil's brother. So he's also a brother of Jalaluddin Haqqani, um, whose full given name as in designations and other and sanctions and other other places is Muhammad Ibrahim Omari. Um, he's a well-known character. He was actually sanctioned in early 2001. So he's been sanctioned by the UN for more than 20 years. Um, presumably, he's protected by the Doha deal as well. Uh, anyway, Ibrahim Haqqani, what's interesting, I noticed... Um, about this, and I'm going to write this up at the Lone Word Journal, is that he's identified, you remember, Bill, that in 2010, the Al-Qaeda negotiated this ransom exchange with the Afghan government for an Afghan ambassador, and they got $5 million for it. Um, well, he's identified in the Bin Laden files as the key guarantor of a transaction. He's the key mediator, Ibrahim Haqqani is. Um, so he's the guy who, in the Bin Laden files, is identified as the key player here in making sure this money got into Al-Qaeda's coffers. Um, and I guess, you know, look, I think if if the U.S. would say, hey, maybe we should uh, be worried about al-Qaeda's money man here and Ibrahim Haqqani, the Taliban will say he's protected by the Doha deal as well. So this is, you know, quite a fiasco. Uh, but I've got a piece coming up. You can see pictures of him online. He's, he's you know, feeling his oats as well. He's, uh, you know, he's definitely having a victory parade. Um, but again, all this speaks to the absurdity of the whole thing. Um, and, you know, when I look online, it's just amazing how much the Haqqani's played a role in all this and how America never understood it, never really never really synthesized it. Yes, at times the American government understood parts of it, but they never understood the whole story. Yeah, they never had the full picture. I'll, I'll just highlight, and you know, one of the fascinating things in looking at this new cabinet is they literally, I would say, I can't tell you what percentage because I haven't gone back in, and, but nearly every one of these guys was involved in the Taliban's government back in 1996 to 2001. Some of them have the same exact roles that they had back then. Um, but another Haqqani on this list, is, his name is Mulataj Mir Jawad. He was the leader of what the U.S. military used to call the Kabul attack network. That's what pulled all the resources um, in the Kabul and the surrounding provinces from the Taliban. Obviously, Haqqanis are part of that. Um, Al-Qaeda, Islamic Movement, Uzbekistan, Islamic Jihad Union, Turkestan Islamic Party, Hizbin Islamic Bulbadeen, et cetera, et cetera. All of the TTP movement in the Taliban in Pakistan. If they had resources in this area, they were the ones that pulled off these major attacks against hotels and, and the U.S. installations and NGOs and schools. 
He's their uh, first deputy of intelligence in the new Taliban government. He's a Haqqani network leader. The, the Haqqanis are integrated. He's not designated, um, but he is identified by the U.S. military and U.S. government as being a member. But, of but, Bill, if he were, but Bill, if he were designated, he'd still be protected by the government. He'd still be protected, yeah, so. right? He's right, actually even right. more protected. Because he's yeah, not right. a designated right. individual. He's our counterterrorism partner now. I don't know what you're talking it, about. Yeah, right. See, the intelligence, he's a guy. If we're working with the Taliban um, to target, oh, Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, if you actually believe that nonsense, you'd be working with the guy who killed Americans and others and other civilians in horrific suicide assaults in Kabul for the last 15 plus years. Yeah, let's let's negotiate with the Taliban. Let's work with our new quote, unquote, Afghan partners. Thank you, General McKenzie. Yeah, well, you know, let's talk about his boss, who's the new acting yep. director of intelligence. So this is a good segue here to five of my favorite guys in this whole oh, story. Yeah. I was he's, saving them he's, for you, Tom. I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to steal your thunder. No, it's all right. So his boss, Jawad's boss um, in the new Taliban regime, which is really just the old Taliban regime, which apparently was just waiting to come back into power. <laughs> yeah, yeah, apparently for 20 years, apparently. It's, people, like, when I say that these guys are taking the same job, Oh, it's unbelievable. It's incredible. It, it, it's literally, they just said, hey, you got your job back. And they probably had the same, same or similar job while the Taliban had their shadow government. Some of these guys became, went from like minister of mines and petroleum to the minister of agriculture. But the real heavy hitters, the ones who mattered, get the you know defense, interior, uh, things like that, intelligence. Those guys got their jobs. Back. Let's just briefly go into the five guys we're talking about here. These are five ex Gitmo detainees. They were held at Guantanamo. Um, they were traded or exchanged for Bo Bergdahl, an American soldier who deserted his post in 2014. Um, Bergdahl was then held by the Akanis, of course, you know because they just magically appear at all the key junctures here. And so these five Guantanamo detainees were exchanged for him in 2014. Now, remember, part of when we talk about the ambivalence here in the war in Afghanistan is that, remember, in 2014, it was that same year. This was all part of the Obama administration's attempt to wrap up the war. So it was by the end of the year, President Obama announced the end of combat operations by the U.S. and NATO. So this exchange was all supposed to be part about bringing the last of the Americans held by the Taliban and Connie's home because the U.S. was supposedly getting out in 2014. That's how, that's how long the political establishment has really... This even predates that, but that's how long the political establishment has been looking to run from this. Um, so anyway, the five guys include Abdul Haq Wasik. Abdul Haq Wasik is one of these ex-Gimbal detainees. He was a senior intelligence figure. He was a deputy deputy minister of security intelligence during the Taliban's first regime. Bill, you said that some of these guys got their old jobs back. Well, Wasik got a promotion. He got a promotion. Yeah, yeah, but it, yeah from Islam, Islamic Emirate 1.0 to 2.0, he's actually now just the director of intelligence. So he was deputy director. Now he's director. So good for him. Uh, now, what did he do his first time around? Well, the first time around, and you can find this, you know, we link to the UN sanctions page because he's been sanctioned for twenty more than 20 years since, since early 20, uh, 2001. And um, you could see in... Early 2001, the UN said that he went from being a local commander in Nimruz and Kandahar provinces um, to being the deputy director general of intelligence. And it was in that role, according to the UN, he was in charge of handling relations with Al-Qaeda-related foreign fighters and their training camps in Afghanistan. So here's a guy who's the new director of intelligence for the Taliban's Islamic Emirate 2.0, who literally helped Al-Qaeda with its camps and its facilitation network pre-9-11. Good going. And... I'm guessing he's protected by the Doha deal too, Bill, right? I mean, he's got to be. Right? Sure, you know, so sure, I mean, sure is. I'm, I'm he's also a Gitmo guy, Tom. And, you know, those guys, 
You got they're untouchable now. You can't touch them. Well, that would just be hard. Well, he's, he's one of the five ex-Gil Modetanis that we have a write up here about these guys are new leaders. Um another one is Mohammed Fazel, who was a senior was a deputy defense minister pre-9-11. He's deputy defense minister again. He was an ex-Gil Modetani exchange for Bergdahl. Good going. Uh Fazel, um, you know, there's all sorts of evidence that he worked with Al Qaeda prior to 9-11. Go figure. Um, in fact, it was after one of the things that stuck out to me and all the files that come out about him is that after Al Qaeda killed Ahmed Shah Massoud on September 9, 2001, Fazl coordinated with Abdel Hadi al Iraqi, who was a top lieutenant for bin Laden, to launch the offensive against the Northern Alliance to try and knock them out as in preparation for the aftermath of 9 11. Now, whether he knew about 9 11 or not, I don't know, but the bottom line is he was part of the Al Qaeda had a synchronized game plan for 9 11 that involved the military component on the ground in Afghanistan. This guy was part of it, and he's back in charge of um, the Deputy Minister of Defense there. Um, but yeah, three others. You have Karula Kerkwa. Um, he was all these four of the five guys here were sanctioned. This is what's so ridiculous about this. Four of the five guys here were sanctioned in January or February of 2001 by the Before 9 so 11. These guys were known people. bad actors all the way back then. In fact, I think something like 17 out of the 33 named ministers for the Taliban's new regime were sanctioned by the UN. Most of the most, if not all of them, prior to 9-11. That's so it's literally just the old regime. These guys were waiting, you know, they were either captured and let go or in Pakistan or Qatar or whatever, just, you know, biding their time to basically take over it once again. That again speaks to the absurdity of all this. Um, but Kurula Kerkwa, um, he was the top confidant of Mul Omar prior to 9-11. He was also the governor of the Herat province and held other senior positions. Well, one of the things he did, and this is this was held up by a, a DC district court is he brokered the deal with the Iranian government to work together against America after America invaded Afghanistan in late 2001. Wow. You know, so that that's something he admitted to many times in the district court in denying his uh, petition for uh, habeas corpus. That's something that they noted, that the court noted was accurate. So, you know, um, by the way, these two other guys real quick, and I'll make another point. Uh, Nurul Anori, you know, he's got a pretty menacing picture. You can see at uh, Long War Journal, he's got a, a glare. Um, he's he was the he's now the acting minister of borders and tribal affairs. Interesting. Um, he was a top military commander for the Taliban pre 9-11, um, according to the information that Joint Task Force Guantanamo, which oversaw the detention facility. He's somebody who fought alongside Al Qaeda as a Taliban military general against Northern Alliance prior to 9-11 and hosted Al Qaeda commanders. And both he and Fazl are actually suspected of committing war crimes in pre 9-11 Afghanistan. And then the final one is Mahabha Nabi Omari, who he's not a, a named cabinet minister in the Taliban's regime, but he's now the, the governor in the coast province. He's a was he was a close associate of Jalal and Akani. He's somebody who worked as part of this joint Al Qaeda Taliban cell, according to the intelligence cited by JTF Gitmo. And his son, I remember you noticed noted this on Twitter, uh, Bill, that his son Abdul Haq was actually killed during fighting in coast in July. Um, and of course, the Taliban celebrated. Openly celebrated on Voice of Jihad, celebrated his son's martyrdom. So these are five guys who were Gitmo detainees, who were traded for a deserter in Bo Bergdahl, and they have assumed either the same role or a similar role or just a slightly different role now in the Taliban's Islamic Emirate 2.0. And oh, by the way, uh, there's no evidence, there's no reason to think any one of the five was innocent when they were held at Guantanamo. None. I don't know of any evidence that they were tortured, by the way. I know a lot of people like to say that all the Gitmo detainees were innocent and tortured. Uh, I don't think that's true in most cases. Um, but in any event, there's no evidence these guys were tortured or that they were innocent. And all five of them, there's intelligence, including either from 
the UN sanctions pages or from JTF Gitmo or other sources. There's evidence all five of them worked with Al-Qaeda prior to 9-11 and they're right back in the game. Yeah, I, you know, this... The, the thing that struck me, Tom, when we were going through these, and we're going to get back to, uh, sorry to take it back to why we lost, but look at this list. Did we defeat the Taliban after 2000, after the invasion in 2001, 2002? These are, the Taliban's leadership is the same leadership. The only, it's only slight differences here. For Mullah Yacoub, Mullah Omar's son, right? Well, he was a jihadist 20 years ago. Surajuddin Haqqani, the same thing. They weren't in top leadership posts within the Taliban. They certainly were well positioned for it. So they're just the new old, they're old blood, just new old blood. But the guys that you're mentioning here, the Taliban leadership fled to Pakistan and Iran and other places. They held out, they waited us out and then waited for the military victory. And now they're back. This is, this is an indictment on across four administrations and failure to deal with Pakistan as the as the Taliban's prime supporter, prime ally. The fact, you know, people say, oh, there's no military solution to, to Afghanistan. Well, guess what? I could have given you a non-military solution to, to Afghanistan. Put the pressure on the Pakistanis. We could have we could have designated individuals and worked your way up all the way to, to cutting off trade and stopping travel. And remember, a lot of Pakistanis are dual citizens or, or, or have money invested in Britain and France and European countries or United States. All the way. And then on the other side, what if you started arming India, giving it its advanced technology and, and insisted that it put it on the border with Pakistan? Look, I can't build a time machine and tell you that this would have worked, but I'm pretty damn sure if you would have went down this path, that all of these guys on this list would have been dead on the streets of Mirinchah, Peshawar, Rawalpindi, Islamabad, Quetta, and everywhere else. But no, we just decided that we weren't going to, we were going to pretend that Pakistan was our friend here and that Pakistan wasn't really supporting the Taliban. The fact that these individuals are still alive today and that they've come back to lead the Taliban once again is an indication that yes, we drove the Taliban off the battlefield in 2000 by 2002. They were defeated on the battlefield, but they did not suffer a strategic defeat. That strategic defeat would have been taking out their leaders, taking out their, their religious leaders who were very important to the organization. But as you can see right here, some individuals died, but not enough of them, not the senior ones, not the ones that count. Yeah, it just, I know when you and I were looking through the list of the cabinet ministers, in particular for the Taliban, Salman Gambert, we were just struck by how much of these guys are old personalities. I mean, the head of state, so-called head of state, and sometimes they call him prime minister, which is a joke because this is not some European style, you know, government here. Give me a break. But it shows how these guys, bad actors around the globe, are able to ape sort of the language used by the, or mimic the language used by by the U.S. And, and European countries to describe their governments because, you know, whatever. But the guy is Hassan Akund. And one of the things I found in going through, I, mean, I remember it actually from years ago, is that Akund very loudly after the U.S. embassy bombings in 1998, which was Al-Qaeda's most deadly, the most deadly attacks carried out by Al-Qaeda prior to 9-11. Akund in 1999, when the U.N. said, turn over bin Laden or you face sanctions to the Taliban, Akund was the guy who came out and said, you know, no, we're not going to turn over Osama at any price. Doesn't matter what you want, you know. And he's now the head of state, so-called head of state for the Taliban's regime. 
I mean, that guy has been in the game forever and he's just back. In fact, he just got a promotion, really. I mean, he was foreign minister. He was these other, he held these other positions in the Taliban's first regime and now he's back. So look, I think this is part of the reason why we're recording this. We're going to wrap up here because there's a lot, a lot of other things to do and we'll, we'll come back. We'll try and record the next episode uh, in short order and not, not have as much of a delay. But part of the reason why we're recording this with as much sort of anger and, and but mixed with humor here after the fall of Afghanistan is because, you know, years from now, people are going to try and figure out what went wrong. And I just want to say to those people speaking throughout, you know, the history here, if, you, if you're listening to this sometime in the distant future, it's worse than whatever you think it was, right? It's much worse, right? If you think there was incompetent and there was corruption and there was stupidity and there was all these things and lack of leadership and poor leadership and Taliban apology and all these things, all that's true. Just, it really could not have been any, I don't know how it could have been handled any any worse, right? I mean, this is about as poorly handled as possible, I would say, from top to bottom. Um, that isn't to say there weren't some successes. There were, of course. I mean, they got Bin Laden, they took out some Al-Qaeda guys here and there, they did this and that, great. But none of that really justifies the overall, and they stopped plots, of course, coming out of the region. Absolutely, that happened. That's a big deal um, against the U.S. and our allies. But the cost here, the incompetence, the the problems with this war don't justify all that, right? I mean, to, to my mind, when I look at all the costs here of, of how this was waged and how ridiculous this whole spectacle has been, this debacle has been, I just hope that people in the future realize that this was really just a colossal failure of American leadership, colossal, from both parties, and that nobody knew what they were doing. The truth of the matter is the emperor was nude all along. Yeah, Tom, that, that's absolutely right. And, you know, we had tactical wins, as you know, killing bin Laden, killing senior al-Qaeda leaders. By the way, how did we do that with a presence in Afghanistan? <clears throat> but it was a just an overall strategic failure. For You know, al-Qaeda operates in more re- regions in, in the world, more countries. You have a rival in the Islamic State, which is equally as deadly. They both share the same goals. And no one understands this. And, you know, and, and this is 9-11, right? We were recording on September 10th here. And if you, you know, look, some of our listeners, you may not have been born or you may have been very young when that happened. Go back and watch it. There's a documentary on Netflix that I'm reticent to um, recommend. But watch the first episode and a half of that and get the visuals of it and, and see what happened to your American citizens. And remember, and and what bothers me maybe the most about all of this, I hate losing, I hate failure, I hate incompetence. I hate watching our political leaders just fall all over themselves, groveling to the Taliban. But and, and maybe it's that part that bothers me the most. These are our enemies who just, again, just go back and look at what happened on 9-11 and remember that. They don't have any anger and any frustration. And some of the theme of that, of that, of that show is, well, we acted out of anger and whatever. Look, I'm going to tell you a healthy dose of anger isn't a bad thing. Holding on to that anger isn't a bad thing. You need to remember what they've done, what they've done to us as a country, what they've done to 3,000 of your fellow countrymen and thousands of American soldiers and civilians since, since then. They are our enemies. And this idea that they're not, and, and that not just that, but then groveling to them in the process, this deal, it's, it's uh, I don't have words for it. I'm frustrated and angry and but most of all, probably disgusted by our political leadership 
and even our generals who should know better, um, who should understand this threat. And then they use words like calling the Taliban or Afghan partners. I know I've referenced that probably two, three times during this episode, but that one will stick to me to my grave. Yeah, I mean, I'll just uh, close on this thought. I mean, that's the point in all this is like, yeah, the tour was messed up and it was a debacle from top to bottom in a lot of ways. Although, you know, again, there's some tactical successes, but overall it was a, a mess. Um, the thing I would say about it is that none of that leads me to make excuses for the Taliban. And it's just pathetic to watch how many people in the so-called American elite fall over themselves to make excuses for the Taliban and entertain these ridiculous counterfactuals in which the Taliban, you know, was something other than the Taliban and something other than Al-Qaeda's closest ally. It's just pathetic, you know. And we've cited many times Mullah Omar on September 26, 2001, defiantly claiming, uh, saying that he wasn't going to turn over bin Laden and this was a matter for Islam's prestige. And yet people falling over themselves to find articles in the, the coming the weeks that followed saying, oh no, the Taliban was willing to negotiate bin Laden's status. No, they weren't. They That was all interference. It's all obfuscation. They, they still claim to this day. They claim then that there was no evidence of bin Laden's involvement and they wanted to be presented with evidence. That was the key thing that they kept saying over and over again in late 2001, these other figures, not Omar. Um, they still say that to this day. 20 years later, the Taliban says there's no evidence. This Taliban spokesman just said this recently. There's no evidence that bin Laden or al-Qaeda was responsible for 9-11. And yet you have Washington falling over itself to entertain counterfactuals that absolve the Taliban. Absolve the Taliban. Pathetic, absolutely pathetic, you know? And so, yeah, that doesn't... I'm not saying that everything that went wrong in this war is justified because of that. Um, it isn't. But this counterfactual that you see entertained all over the place is really perverse. It's really sick stuff. And um, there's just a mountain of facts that show that these people don't know what they're talking about. But it, it shows you the desire, the willingness to, to, to whitewash this stuff. And so 20 years after 9-11, I think America lost something other than just the war in Afghanistan. I, thought, I think it lost its sense of its own self. And the fact that our so-called elites are so willing to defend the Taliban. Well, you know, it's your emirate too now then. If you're one of these people who makes excuses for the Taliban, it's your emirate too. And you should you should uh, take a point of pride that you helped resurrect this regime because now it's back in power. Billy, you have anything to close No, Tom, that's absolutely right. I also wish they could go, be forced to live there for a couple of years, bring their families, enjoy your new emirate. All these people kvetching over, I can't believe the Taliban's beating women and journalists and whatnot. Really? You can't believe it? I mean, it's the same leadership from 1996 to 2001. We knew this was going to happen. And, you know, you apologists who led to this, um, go buy a villa in, in, in Kabul and get back to me in five years. On that cheery note, that's episode 56 of Generation Jihad. Uh, thank you to our audience for listening. Uh, please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Um, hopefully that if you're listening to this episode or any episode, really, you got something, um, you know, you're working out, lifting weights, doing something to get angry and sort of take it out. That's certainly what I'm going to do after this. And I will see, we will see you again soon. It's been three weeks in between episode 55 and 56. It won't be that long to hear from us again. Take care.